Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Mary Hunter, who's an SNP councillor for the south side of Glasgow and has been since 2012. Uh, she's also the city convener for health and social care. This is a brilliant, wide-ranging discussion about not just the politics of Scotland, but of Glasgow as well. Before I come on to that, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Now, I get a lot of lovely emails. Thank you for them all. Uh, keep them coming in, particularly with your stories um, of strange encounters with politicians or mundane or, or odd places you've seen them. I'm going to read this one out for a particular reason it's from Joe. And he emails me from the hospital um, with COVID. So, Joe, I hope you get well soon. He said, whilst in A&E, he listened to the Jeremy Hunt interview, which I guess makes some sort of sense. And he said the phrase that really resonated with him was the one that Jeremy Hunt said, we need to come away from we need to come away from hating the other side as nothing gets resolved, which is absolutely the spirit of this podcast. Um, so right at the end, in fact, it's on the PS. He says, with the current conflict in the world, I can see Thomas Tugendhat becoming being in the leadership role very soon. If not, he should be. Now, I don't read that out just because I think that is a um, a very good point. And Thomas Tugendhat is, uh, Tom Tugendhat, as he's uh, often called, um, is a very talented politician. I read that out because that is um, excellent timing, because I can confirm um, that Tom Tugendhat will be doing one of the live shows at the Duchess Theatre, and I'm very excited about it. So the next show on the 7th of March is with Neil Kinnock. That is obviously going to be an incredible night out. Two weeks later, on Monday, the 21st of March, my guest will be Tom Tugendhat. He is exceptional. He's really been the Tory's strongest voice on foreign policy. He's been uh, very uh, honest about his disagreements with the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's behaviour. He's been phenomenal on Afghanistan. His speech on Afghanistan was incredible. And he served in Afghanistan, so he knows it very well. His stuff on Ukraine has been exemplary. Um, on top of all that, he's also a very funny man. So it, that is a night that will have everything. So they're the next two guests. Monday the 7th of March, Neil Kinnock. Monday the 21st of March, Tom Tugendhat. Um, an iconic Labour leader, uh, former Labour leader, and a potential Tory uh, leader of the future, if uh, there's any justice, because he is a very, very talented politician. That will be a very special night. Tickets for all those shows, including uh, the re... Um, what's the word? Rescheduled. <laughs> God, I don't know why I struggled so much with that word. The rescheduled Christmas special with Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg is on the 11th of April. Um, I can, I'm on the verge of being able to confirm some... I mean... Special doesn't do justice to it. And obviously, I have except I only have exceptional people on this show. Um, 
but a booking that is um well I, I can't until I can confirm it I shouldn't say any more but when I'm able to tell you you're gonna go oh my god so you can get tickets for all future shows at mattford.com. Uh, and of course, I'm on tour. And thank you to so many of you that have been to see me recently. South End was out of this world. Birmingham was brilliant. Um, it means the world that you come and see me. I'm very grateful. And it's a real pleasure to be back out doing stand-up again uh, with my new show, Clans to the Left. Clans to the Left and me, Jokers to the Right. Uh, and this week, I'm in Corby, uh, Salford, Chorley. Not in that order. I'm terrible at self-promotion. There's about three tickets left for the Chorley gig. Um, there's not many left for the Corby gig either. Um, and um, a lot of tickets have gone for the Salford gig. And I mean, Newcastle soon, Hexham, Annick, Glasgow. Well, how topical. I mean, I'm doing uh, two nights in Edinburgh and one night in Glasgow, uh, the 28th, 29th and 30th of March. Um, so that leads me nicely in um, to talking about Mary. I first got to know Mary through Twitter. And actually, this is the first time we've ever spoken. We've never met in person. Um, but she's a very positive and very pragmatic and very reasonable voice on social media. Given the way that politics in this country has gone, particularly since 2016, and the way that politics has gone in Scotland since 2014, and all the negative associations with that, particularly on social media, the more reasonable voices, more reasonable voices have been um, just such a welcome, reassuring and positive um presence and mary is one of those people so i was delighted to get her on she did this by the way whilst having lost a tooth and with a stinking cold so she deserves huge credit for giving such a brilliant interview in such very difficult circumstances but this is a really i haven't had nearly enough people on from local government i know i've had um a couple of mayors on uh, in england but actually i have i need more people that have different roles in local government, including chief executives and things. Um, so Glasgow Council obviously has had a lot of attention in the last few years, so there's a lot to talk about there. But also the relationship between the government and the council, let alone the UK government, and the tensions within Scottish local politics about what areas get what attention and how that works. Um, and uh, a whole load of other stuff as well. Mary used to work for Nicola Sturgeon in her constituency office, so we talk about that. Um, and just about the politics of Glasgow, all the things you'd expect us to cover, um, covered in a very pragmatic and reasonable way. Delighted to be joined by Mari. Did I get that right? Mari. Mari, come <laughs> on. getting married. <laughs> Mary, of course, yes, that's the best way to remember it. Mary Hunter, <laughs> who is a uh, Glasgow City Council on the south side of Glasgow, has been for 10 years. Um, yep. since 2012, <laughs> and facing re-election this year. Um, so the elections are in May, which isn't that long yep. away now. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, currently, Glasgow, it, it, is it technically no overall control, even though the leader's SNP? It's an SNP minority administration. And, uh, I mean, so I'm that guessing... Means we don't have, you know, we don't have enough votes to get things through, uh, you know, just through SNP councillors so you need to get support from other parties for things like your budget and other big decisions well we'll come on to that because that can often be I mean it can be tricky enough if you have got a majority let alone if you haven't mm. um, <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm guessing without having done a, a whole load of homework on the current polling in Glasgow for the local elections 
I'm guessing the expectation is, is that the SNP would win an outright majority this time. Well, that is certainly what we're what we're aiming for. I mean, you know, never take anything for granted, but that that is definitely the outcome we're we're hoping to get in this campaign. And it's been a big few years for, for Glasgow and, and local government has really been in, in the spotlight in Glasgow, obviously hosting COP26, which was fantastic yep. for the city, fantastic for the country, you know, and for the UK in general, it was just amazing to have that here. Phenomenal for the city to have it um, hosted there. Obviously, these things can present specific logistical challenges, particularly yep. during a pandemic. So um, uh, what was the balance between the kind of excitement and, and the prestige of hosting COP26 with the very real pressures that local government finds itself under during a, a time like that? Well, I mean, it was very much a kind of partnership between the UK government, the Scottish government, Glasgow City Council and the UN itself. You know, I think some people thought that the council was running the whole thing. No, we weren't. <laughs> you know, I mean, actually inside the um, venue, it was it was all run by the UN. Um, and, you know, there were various elements that came together, you know, across the kind of two um, governments and and from from the council as well. But I mean, I think it was, you know, a great success in terms of the outcomes, a little bit disappointed in that. But um, it was a really good event, um, and and we got we, we got great feedback from 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 everyone who attended. I think they enjoyed being in Glasgow. And how did you find? I mean, there will always be tensions between whatever tiers of government are delivering these things, well, whether they're the same party or not. Did you find that in general the council? The Scottish government and the UK government were, were able to handle those different tiers of government and obviously the different politics, the varying politics of those three different tiers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was some, I mean, there was some kind of silliness, you know, with people saying, "Oh, why is a cluster there and and whatnot?" But you know, I, I think on the whole, it went really well. I mean, you'll know yourself quite often in politics, what you see in the media doesn't always reflect what actually goes on. Actually, there is a lot of, of, of kind of close working goes on behind the scenes, but nobody's really interested in that. No, no. But I think that's reassuring for people to know. I mean, I guess you presume that because we have a civil service and stuff that they are apolitical, sensible folk who you know, yeah. are pragmatists and, and, and obviously very talented. Um, I guess the risk for the city council is whenever anything like this happens, because you are the more the most immediate geographically to where this stuff is happening. Now, the UK government really is a sort of distant entity compared to the city council, that you get the blame for anything that goes wrong and then the yes. people higher yes. up get the credit for anything <laughs> that goes right. Yeah, well, that is, that, that is the role of councils. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, obviously, there was a bit of focus on... Um, I guess the cleanliness of the city, I mean, compared to other parts of the UK, compared to other parts of Scotland, is Glasgow in a uniquely different position in that regard, do you think? Um, I would say not, um, but it's it's an issue which has been kind of weaponized politically, but I think it's fair to say you see it everywhere. If you look at kind of local newspapers in any city, you know, there's been a bit of a kind of, you know, combination of things which are pandemic related with many more people being at home um, with the impact of, of, of the pandemic, not only um, 
in staff in terms of absence, you know, people either self-isolating or with COVID or with underlying health conditions. But it had you, the kind of impact of, of, of social distancing was really challenging when you've got like six guys who get into a lorry and, you know, they can't do that anymore. So there were a whole combination of things that led to a really, you know, reduced surface. But it's so, I mean, I think where folks say, well, there was a lot of rubbish building up, things weren't being done the way that they usually were being done. That's absolutely true. But it, you know, it wasn't just in Glasgow. <laughs> that's that's something that's been seen in cities across the UK and across Europe. You know, it's not it's not even unique in in the UK. It, it kind of pretty much happened everywhere. Obviously, Glasgow is the biggest city in in Scotland, the most densely populated part of the country. Yeah, uh, and in many ways, I mean, obviously that. Edinburgh is where the Scottish government lives, but really, for many people, Glasgow really feels like the, the capital of Scotland. I know there's a great rivalry between the two cities, but um, <laughs> <laughs> Glasgow obviously faces, you know, it's got such a bigger population. There's so many more people there. Um, how, how is that reflected in, in the political pressures that, that Glasgow faces? Um, well, Glasgow, in some ways, is... Um, as you say, it is the kind of biggest city. It's also a city which has the biggest kind of challenges, I think, in Scotland. Um, but, it, but it is also, it's kind of a city of, of contrast because it has huge challenges with poverty and deprivation, but it is also a centre of innovation. Um, you know, it's got really close working with the universities, you know, and, and business, there's, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of cutting edge um, business located in Glasgow. So it, has, so it is a city of, of contrasts, I think, which can be quite challenging for people to understand, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and it feels, you know, you get off the train in Glasgow and you feel like you're in a big European city. You know, these are huge mm, yeah. buildings stunning architecture and it's you know it's a busy big place um and probably the only place in scotland that feels like that that feels like yeah. there's a lot of people here and, and big stuff happens here you know it's got a real energy and a very strong identity obviously also has a great radical tradition politically um yeah do, 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 do the, does the sort of legacy of glasgow's politics have any bearing do you think on on the current politics of glasgow Yes, you know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think it does. And I think, I think Glasgow also has an identity as an immigrant city, you know, so many people came from other parts, I mean, from people coming from the Highlands, people coming from Ireland, people coming from other parts of Europe and other parts of of the world. So it is a very kind of diverse city, which I think is a really important part of the character of any city um, and makes it feel like a city, you know. So that's so that's a big part of Glasgow's identity. And I think the fact that, you know, it was a centre of, of um, you know, so the, you know, the birth of, of trade unions, the birth of, 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 of all kind of radical kind of politics. Yeah, that's that's very, very much a part of the identity of the city. Uh-huh. Obviously, as a, as a councillor, you get to effectively ply your trade in, in the stunning Glasgow city chambers, which are 
<laughs> sort of incredible. I mean, they look great from the outside. From the inside, they're absolutely incredible. Now, obviously, a lot of listeners to this show will be uh, fans of municipal buildings, and they often are the most stunning yeah. buildings in any city. I mean, even we're thinking of some of the amazing places across the UK, even in that, Glasgow has to be the most incredible council building in Britain. I mean, it's absolutely... I mean, I know people get a rush when they go to Parliament or to Holyrood or whatever, but it must be a great place to work. It's, it's. Um, I mean, I've got mixed views because it is amazing. I mean, it's, 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 you know, just an amazing building, just kind of, <laughs> you're just walking on marble wherever you go, you know, but there's an element of it as well. And we've got a kind of um, what's called a picture gallery up at the top of the chambers and you go round and you've got pictures, you know, portraits of Lord Provost going way back when. And you just look at these guys and you look at all the marble and there's something about it that's just kind of redolent of, you know, Victorian villainy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I do have mixed views. I love it. But I also kind of think, you know, how did these guys make their money? <laughs> you know, how did they get to be in this in this position, you know? <laughs> yes, well, I, I guess, you know, cities all over Britain are reassessing their, their history and the people that they have mm. statues and portraits of. And um, obviously Glasgow has a particular history where, you know, the, how these, mm, these yeah. buildings were funded. Um, but you would still want to have the city council in that building, wouldn't you? No, absolutely, yeah. And it's also, it's, um, I mean, one of the things we're getting really good at in Glasgow now is, um, is, is, is films. You know, we've got a lot of really major films coming to the city now to, um, for shooting. And you do quite often see wee bits of the city chambers in films now because it's very much a kind of sought after um, location. Well, yes, yeah, so I've seen the interior on a few things, but that area around George Square, there's been, I, I want to say World War Z, but then it doesn't work as a pun. I, I, I guess yeah. it has to be World War Z, sound like World War Three. Indiana Jones, yeah. Batman. I mean, those yeah. streets around the centre of Glasgow double as parts of America so easily. I mean, it must be amazing, actually. If you're on the local authority, do you get to go down and watch it being filmed? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, everyone does. <laughs> when they <laughs> film, everyone turns out to see who is it today. Is it Indiana Jones? Who is it? <laughs> and do you get to meet them? No. <laughs> oh, come on. You've got to, no. you've got to think, you need, surely that should be a condition. You say, oh, you, you can, <laughs> Harrison Ford can film you it. You might, but... you might. I mean, you know, you might if you had some kind of role there, but I've never, I've never, <laughs> I've never got to meet anybody famous yet. Nope. <laughs> I'm surprised. I mean, Glasgow's a place that produces obviously a lot of famous people and, uh, you know, stars of, you know, sports, stage, screen and obviously politics. Um, well, you you know Nicola Sturgeon. She's the first minister. I mean, I guess she counts as a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> you work for her as well. Um, I was going to ask about the interaction between local government and, and, and the national government, but I guess you get to lobby the first minister directly on behalf of the constituents <laughs> of the South Side. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't work for her as such. I used to, I used to run her office, <clears throat> and I still kind of do joint surgeries and things. Although a lot of that's just, I mean, we're just getting back to normal in terms of all of that because you know, not much has happened during the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, people sometimes think that because I, because I have a connection with her, I can just say 
hey Nicola why don't you do this and that's not really the way things work <laughs> it's the way some people would do it you're obviously got um higher values than other people but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, give us a new school Nicola come on <laughs> yeah no I mean I mean that's something that you know comes up sometimes in you know in the ward or in her in her constituency you know if you know, a, an organisation doesn't get funding or, you know, something happens, people think, oh, you can just fix this because you're the First Minister. But it really doesn't work like that, you know. <laughs> First Ministers aren't allowed just to fix things because it's it's their constituency. <laughs> yes, I guess people call that pork barrel politics, don't they? Or, mm, uh, yeah. or, or, or there's another phrase for it, I think. It's but... all, I mean, all, all of these things are done that kind of arm's length, you know, just, just to ensure that there can't be any political interference. I mean, equally, it must be very tempting for it to funnel a bit, <laughs> a bit more cash to their own backyard. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there have been. I can't think of any specifically, but I'm sure there have been cabinet ministers in the UK of, you know, made sure. That well, I mean, there was all that stuff um, in the media um, about the kind of levelling up fund, and you just say, well, something will have gone wrong there because, you know, I mean, the, I mean, the kind of system is set up so that, you know, ministers will set the criteria for a fund. But then the actual decisions about whether applications meet those criteria, they should all be done at arm's length. There shouldn't be any kind of political involvement in that. So if I mean you, I mean, you don't know how much of it is true, but you know, it, if any of it is true, it means that something's gone pretty wrong with the way the system's meant to work. And the phrase levelling up itself is something that even the people who mm. use it have struggled even to define. Um, I mean, I guess if you sort of depoliticise it, you can understand what people would might mean by it, that there are places that are further behind that perhaps need more attention. Yeah. Just thinking about Scotland and maybe Glasgow specifically, I mean, do you think there are parts, parts of Glasgow that require more urgent attention? And, and you know, is, is there a sort of... I know you're not going to use the phrase levelling up because that's a sort of Tory term, but is there a Scottish government at Glasgow City Council um, view of where well, most are, resources should be targeted? There are kind of two two answers to this. I mean, one in, in terms of internally within within the council, that, yeah, that's definitely the approach that we've taken, looking at the areas of the city, looking at, um, you know, stats or deprivation and so on. This thing we really need to try and prioritise investment in in areas of the city which haven't had so much of it. Um, in terms of the Scottish government, there's a formula for allocating local, local government funding, which is agreed between the Scottish government and COSLA, that's the Convention of Scottish Local Authorities. So that's all 32 local authorities. And there's a formula which is used to allocate funding, which takes account of all kinds of things, you know, population, um, deprivation, particular needs and so on. Now, I would, I, I would say, I mean, I'm sure every councillor would say that they don't get a fair deal, but I, I genuinely don't think Glasgow gets a good deal out of that. 
Um, and it's something that's been raised by administrations in Glasgow for, for quite some time. Um, but in terms of how you resolve it, it's not something that can just be resolved by a minister deciding it. It needs to be a conversation between all local authorities, really, about, about looking again at how, at how resources are allocated. I'm thinking of particularly a city like Glasgow uh, and, and the model of local government that, that various areas have, uh, uh, thinking particularly of some of the change that have happened in England with elected mayors and things like that. I mean, Glasgow feels like a city that would be top of the list if that was to be done in Scotland to have a directly elected leader. I mean, is that something that's been considered and what would you think about it? Um, I think I think most of the places where where you see a directly elected leader, it's not simply the city, is it? Is it not the kind of wider region? Um, so some I mean, like that, yeah, you have like metro mayors. Yeah. yeah, I mean what I mean what you have in Glasgow is what's also I mean, you have Glasgow City Council, which is just a city. But you also have the Glasgow kind of metropolitan region, which is the wider, the wider area, which brings in neighbouring kind of smaller local authorities. So I guess if you were going to look for a directly elected, you know, mayor or or, or progress that would more likely be in Glasgow, you would probably be looking for it at that level rather than looking at it within within the city. Because you know cities have their leaders, you know, are effectively the same thing, you know. <laughs> um, but I think you would need to look at, you know, what what powers would those people have? Because you because in order to give them powers, you would need, in a sense, to take some powers away from those partner councils. So I think it's. I understand people kind of looking at it, but I think it would probably need quite a lot of work to see if it would actually make any difference. <laughs> well, I guess the, the one difference it makes, particularly in cities where it does replace the, um, uh, you know, leader of the largest group model, you know, mm -hmm. is that the accountability is so much more direct that the whole city gets mm -hmm. to choose the individual that leads it. That sort of instinctively feels like a good thing that it would people know who the leader of the you know the elected mayor is, and that person yeah. is then out of you know having to do deals with backbenchers. I mean, I know councillors often aren't keen on it for that reason because it means they have less control over their own leader. But is there, yeah. is there a sort of SNP party view on elected mayors? Are they are you against it? Sorry, is there an SNP policy on elected mayors? Is it like? Because I know Labour for a no, while were really not, against not, it. No, I mean it's not. It's not something which I think there is a lot of support for um, within local government. Because again, you know, I mean, again, I would go back to the point that if you're going to create directly elected mayors, they need to have. You need to say, well, what powers should they have, which shouldn't sit with councils? And I think that's where the kind of conversation would possibly become a bit, a bit tricky. <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, I have seen it. I have seen those tricky conversations play out, and obviously, it can certainly councillors can feel undermined by yeah. um, by that sort of thing. Um, just thinking about how you you got here, then um, uh, as a as an elected councillor, 
your mom obviously was a, a national convener for the SNP, very well known within the party. You grew up in a political mm-hmm. household. Some people, when they grow up with really political parents, might rebel against that. They might say, well, you know, uh, a, a mum who was too <laughs> political in my youth might have, you know, forced me to either not go into politics or be a Tory. But you very much uh, followed your mum into the SNP. I mean, is it as simple as that? Or did you ever flirt with other parties? My dad was actually a councillor as well for, for for quite a brief period. He actually won a by-election. He won a council by-election, which took him very much by surprise. <laughs> he didn't think he was going to be elected. He's probably the only winning candidate who wanted to demand a recount. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't so involved in politics when I was younger, but I kind of came, came, came to it probably in my 30s, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's part of, I mean, it's always been a part of my life, you know, you know, the SNP. So I'm not, I'm not going to deny that it's, it's probably been something of a, you know, an ancestral thing. <laughs> but what, I mean, 30s actually, if you come from a political background, 30s is quite late. Mm, yeah. So okay, why was that then? Were you, were you not sort of too bothered at first? What, what was it that then, what was the change that made you want to get more involved? I think it was probably actually just um, that I was having too much fun in my 20s. <laughs> I, I think that's be the best than. answer because that means you're normal. So that's that's reassuring yeah. to me. <laughs> and you, um, you grew up in London as well, which seems to be quite a... I wouldn't say common origin story for some SNP politicians, but Angus Robertson, I think, was born in London. So mm. is that part of the story? Was was growing up in London part of what uh, made you want independence from it? Um, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't really know how to answer that. I mean, I think growing up in London and going back to Glasgow and going back to Scotland, did kind of reinforce these are two different countries, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know how much effect it really had in terms of of, of, of making me continue to to believe in independence. I mean, I should say I didn't. I don't believe in independence simply because I come from an independence supporting family. You know, if I, you know. If I thought three things and thought, well, actually, this is a load of rubbish, I would have been, you know, I would have said that, you know, but I do, I do support independence because I've thought it through rather than it simply being something that's, that I've learned, you know. <laughs> so what part of London did you grow up in? Manor Park, which is it's near East Ham in Newham. And do you ever go back? I think the last time I went back was, oh, actually, I don't know. Um, it was probably a decade ago, to be honest. I mean, Crikey. I've been in London in the, in the past, you know, 10 years or so, but I think the last time I actually went back, I had the time to go back, because usually you're in London for something specific and you don't have a lot of time, but... I think the last time I went back was probably about 20 years ago or something. But I do sometimes have a wee, sometimes I have a wee walk around on Google Street View. <laughs> yes, I do that with places that I used to live. 
I mean, I, the problem is with London, obviously, well, not the problem. The thing with London is it changes very quickly. Yes. So a lot of the, I, I don't know if the streets that you were knocking around on as a kid are, are even still there. The streets are still there, yeah. But things like, um, you know, everything else has changed. But I mean, there's still things you can recognise, like the library and stuff like that. Just thinking about independence then, obviously it's um, in September, it'll be eight years since the 2014 referendum. I mean, it yeah. feels like that has gone very quickly. And obviously there have been seismic events that have happened since. Yes. <laughs> feels as if though the party's always saying, you know, we're on the brink of a second referendum. And there are times yeah. when that's felt very close. There are times when, because of circumstance, things like COVID, political reality has changed that. In reality at the moment, how close do you think we are to, to having another referendum? I think I think we're I think we're I think we're close. Um, I mean, there is this kind of political logjam, but I'm a believer that you know you cross bridges when you come to them. You know, <laughs> so I think there is a big demand from from voters for a second referendum. Um, and and we are we are working to get there, you know. Um, so much as I can't sit and tell you exactly how and when it's going to happen, yeah, I think we are fairly close to it. Some people have been shocked. I know I have actually. That given <laughs> Boris Johnson is the prime minister, and the way that he has handled himself and his government, that actually support. For independence isn't higher. Why do you think the dial hasn't shifted as, as far as people might have expected or hoped? Well, I think I think it has shifted quite quite significantly. Um, but I think there are a lot of people um, just taking into account everything that's happened over the past, you know, few years. Who you know who don't yet say I support independence but are there to be one, you know. I think there's about a third. I mean, I think if you're going to divide the electorate, there's about a third of the electorate who are committed unionists, you know, um, and probably slightly more than that who are committed to independence. But there's, you know, there's still quite a significant group of voters who haven't quite made up their mind, which in a sense is why we need to have a referendum you know, we need to know what what we're doing. But I guess you do know because people did tell you eight years ago and it, it was a decisive outcome. A lot of people might say, we're just getting through COVID. Why do we have to keep talking about the Constitution when, you know, there are more important things going on and, and it wasn't that long ago that we did tell you? Yeah, that's true. But many of the people who now want to have another referendum voted no in 2014, but have changed our minds because of Brexit. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, I guess after any election or referendum, there's going to be people changing their mind in either direction. I mean, it... Mm-hmm. There must be people who say to you, come on, can we just take it off the table for a few years and deal with coming out of COVID, let alone everything else? Well, but that but that's an assumption that I mean that's a, an argument that leaves voters out of the picture. You know, because even if the SNP, you know, turned around and said, Oh yeah, we don't really want to pursue independence here and now. You've still got half the electorate out there saying, well, actually, we do, you know, and that's why we elected you. <laughs> yes, but they seem to be the only half you're trying to talk to. What about the other half who, you know, the majority <laughs> voted no? I mean, the polling really sort of zigzags around, but it's not great for yes, really. It's still bobbling around a position that would be risky to have a referendum with the polling in the place that it is. When you ask people to list their priorities, of course, because people's lives are... are concerned with the immediate, independence is never anywhere near the top of the list. You know, it's it's health, it's crime, it's dog dirt probably comes higher up on people's lists. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure you can understand things in that way, because if you were to say to me, what's your priority right now, my priority would probably be, you know, the council elections, you know? so. You know, people's priorities are sense is what immediately faces them. It's not necessarily what they think the right position is for the country in the long term. But I would argue that, you know, it's almost more destructive not to have a referendum, you know? I can, well, I mean, I think a lot of people would disagree. With them, <coughs> right? It's a very stressful thing to put people through, isn't it? A referendum you know we saw it with brexit we saw it with the referendum in 2014 things get very passionate and people get hurt you know th- these are these are stressful things to put a population through i mean are there really enough people in scotland that really want to go through that again so soon after 2014 and after brexit well they voted for it you know <laughs> in what regard the SNP government um, and they elected enough real greens to ensure that we have a majority to support a referendum. I mean, I, I mean, I can understand those arguments. I absolutely can understand them. But I also think, you know, <clears throat> what's the impact of not having a referendum? It's that your know, politics remains focused on independence for the next however many years without ever actually coming to a point where you take a vote from it. But it's not, it isn't the, the flip side of that, that the only reason there's a focus on independence is because obviously the SNP are in charge. No one mm. else is pushing it. You know, the SNP win elections because they're perceived to be the most competent party in Scotland. It's not that people are necessarily voting for Nicola Sturgeon because they want another referendum. It's that they saw the choice in her and Richard Leonard and made a rational decision she would be the better person to lead the country. 
But we know that support for independence is actually higher than support for the SNP. So you can't simply say, you know, independence is all about the SNP. There's support from <clears throat> obviously um, people who vote green. And there's also support, I mean, up to a third of, of Labour supporters support independence. So, as I said, even if the SNP decided to say, well, we're just going to leave independence to one side for however many years, you still got, a, you know, half the population out there which actually does want to have an independence referendum and which does want to be able to make that decision. I mean, I guess as well, you can't really have, you can't have of all parties, the SNP saying independence isn't a priority when it's central to its brand. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the Scottish government did put the referendum to one side during the pandemic. And I think they were quite right to do that because you have to have everybody completely focusing on getting through that. But touch wood, you know, and it is touch wood, we are, you know, in, in a much, much better place than that. We're starting to see much more of a return to kind of normal life. And that also means much more of a return to normal politics. Unless, of course, we, we, see things, we see other things escalating beyond the point that they're at now, which let's hope we don't. Yes. I mean, uh, is constantly having referendums normal politics? That feels abnormal to me. It's not constantly, you know. It's not constantly. Um, I mean, we were talking, <clears throat> if, if there's a referendum next year, that's nine years after 2014. And I think it's nine years where we've seen more change and more fundamental change than possibly we saw the 20 years before that, you know? <laughs> yes, things have moved fast, but it, it does feel very, you know, it, I know it will be nine years next year, um, but that <laughs> nine years has gone very quickly. I mean, these eight years yeah. have gone very quickly. If there is another one, um, what things do you think should be done differently? I think that I think that we, those of us who are involved in politics, have probably learned a lesson about not just being completely tribal, about having a bit more respect for each other's opinions. I do think looking back on twenty fourteen, it was it was too tribal in the sense I'm talking here primarily about people on social media and that and, and the kind of nature of the political debate and discourse that went on. Which looking back at it was a bit too too tribal. Um, but I think people on both sides have kind of learned that lesson and would try to <laughs> try not to make some of the mistakes that were made in 2014. Although having said that, I do think, you know, Outside of social media, on the ground, it was actually a tremendous campaign. You know, we got levels of engagement that we'd never had before. You know, we had people, we had the highest number of people registered to vote that, we, that we've ever had. Uh, a, a huge turnout, a huge level of engagement, which I think could only be a good thing. But there were, there were certainly issues around... I think particularly on kind of social media 
around the way people maybe engaged with each other. But I think many, you know, many people, and, and I would emphasise this on both sides, you know, I think have, have realised, well, you need to, we can't do that again. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think that's the element that, that really concerned people. But one of the ways, and this is the first time we've ever spoken, but we've spoken on social media uh, over the years. And one of the reasons I began following you was um, you've always been very reasonable, very pragmatic, very open, friendly with people from other parties. And I just thought in the wake of 2014, um, that was a really refreshing approach. I don't know whether that's just the sort of person you've always been and that, that is, you know, a reflection of your, your personality or whether you were making a conscious effort to, to reach out and, and to, to be that way. Um, I mean, my guess is you've just always been like that and this is what you like on social media. But I guess one of the positives of social media is people like you and I get to know each yeah. other in the online world and now we're yeah. talking now. You know, there are positives to social media as well. Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree, agree with that. And I think it's really important not to just speak to people who agree with you about everything on social media. It's about having that engagement. It's about being challenged. Um, but... You know, not not that kind of you know tribal kind of thing that that you get. You know, I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, yeah, I've been around politics long enough to uh, to recognise <laughs> some of that. Um, so thinking then, I mean, it brings us back to something we mentioned at the start about Glasgow City Council and leading a minority administration needing to get. The votes of other parties and obviously the Scottish Greens have an arrangement with the SNP at the Scottish government so and you both agree on independence so I guess you've got a couple of Greens on, on Glasgow City Council I'm sure there's plenty that you disagree about but when you're trying to get votes through I imagine they're people that you can maybe count on more than Conservative councillors. Yes that's fresh to see. <laughs> And how does what what is the politics of the council chamber like? I mean, I've never been to a Glasgow City Council meeting. Uh, is it on the whole a, a respectful arena, or, or is it a fiery place? It can turn from respectful to a bit of a rabbi pretty quickly. <laughs> but we haven't. I mean, we haven't actually been in the council chamber for two years. We've been doing all of our meetings on Teams, so of course that does take away any opportunities to be a bit a bit riotous because you can just get muted <laughs> of course uh, well of course i mean jackie weaver and and the whole hanford parish council gave yes. uh, an insight <laughs> gave the public an insight into what these council meetings are like and obviously that's a parish council that's very different um to, to a city council that the size and the scale of glasgow but when you saw that Jackie Weaver clip, did it did it resonate with you as someone who works in local government? Well, I I I had huge sympathy for Jackie Weaver, but I'm not sure if those guys were right. I, I suspect they might actually have been right. <laughs> well, that was what was tricky, wasn't it? It was is were they in the right? Was a separate question to did they handle themselves in the right way, and they, yes. they obviously handled themselves very badly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so on Glasgow City Council, you've got presently uh, 11 SNP councillors, eight Scottish Labour, two Scottish Tories and two Scottish Greens. Um, no, which, no, no, we've got much oh, more Oh, sorry. That. that was at the last... You know what it is? It, that's at the last... Um, 
sorry. So no, there are 35. Don't ask me to do. Yeah, 35 don't ask SMP. Me to, that's it, yeah. <laughs> 30 Labour, seven Tory, six Greens, five Independent, mm -hmm. and two Albert, Alipa. I've never yeah. quite sure the right way to, to pronounce it again. <laughs> um, so some of those. Alipa ones and independents are, are people that have left the SNP and have they left yeah. because they are even more radical on independence than the SNP? Um, I, I honestly couldn't answer for them. I think there were different circumstances for people leaving, people becoming independents um, who, who, I mean, in some cases they just weren't comfortable being part of a uh, of a political group. Um, the Alba ones, why they left, I have no idea. <laughs> I honestly couldn't tell you because I don't know. <laughs> it does, certainly from a distance, and I realise it's not that much of a distance, you know, it's a small island, but um, politically from a distance, it does seem odd that anyone in Scottish politics would think that the SNP didn't care enough about independence. It, it does feel strange that there are some people that mm. think this isn't Nicola Sturgeon's priority uh, and the best way to put pressure is to leave and form a smaller party that has less influence. I mean, I understand that Alex Salmond has set this party up and I understand that some people, regardless of what's happened, will prefer certain individuals to other individuals and they have loyalty to other individuals and, and whatever else. As a political tactic, I mean, have they put any pressure on the SNP? Could they claim any victory in any regard? No, <laughs> because, you know, you know, I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain school of thought that thinks it's more important to have a referendum than it is to win a referendum. You know, I could just put it like that, you know. <laughs> well, that's the crucial thing, isn't it? Is you, you want to call it when you can win it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because otherwise, it's two defeats on the trot, and and you know it's very difficult. Yes, to absolutely. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, why would you want it if you don't think you could win it? What's their logic? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I have no idea. I think. I think there's an assumption that simply holding a referendum, you will automatically win it. You know. And people look at what happened in 2014, that yes, went from a fairly low base up to 45%, and they assume that, that the same kind of swing will just happen automatically. But it won't, you know, because, <clears throat> you know, um, a, a lot of people in 2014 haven't actually thought about independence seriously before, and they came down on the yes side, we don't have such a big pool of undecided voters as uh, voters as we had back in 2014, um, and we also are dealing with people, you know, many of whom actually voted no in 2014 and could vote yes, could be persuaded to vote yes, are, are, are inclining towards yes. But the kind of tactics, perhaps, that we used in 2014 are not going to be most appropriate to actually win them over. Um, so I think the kind of really ultra impatient people just, just haven't thought through 
what we need to do to win the next referendum because just shouting about independence isn't going to do it, you know. Yeah, and I wonder, actually, and it's the first time, because I think one of the the things that's really impressive about the SNP and has been since 2014, has been that singular, unified focus. And I think other political parties really marvelled at how it's all held together. Now, obviously, just time and government means that you can't, it's just basically impossible for any political movement not to splinter in some way. And, and actually, splintering on the independent side has been pretty small, really. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it certainly hasn't affected the party's popularity. Um so it seems odd that it's the first time, actually, the last two years and everything that happened with the formation of that new party. I thought, actually, I think there are people on the fringes of the independence movement that actually don't mind whether they win or lose. And I just thought it was a different political issue than anything else. I just thought, well, if, you, if you're involved in the independence thing, that's your driving force. That is the one thing you want more than anything else. And then you realise, and maybe I'm wrong, but I was like, actually, I think some of them just like the sort of constant motion of the whole thing. Yeah. And whether yeah, they win or lose, the thing. And right. I, just, I just couldn't, I have, you know what? I know that exists on other issues, but to me, <laughs> Scottish independence, I felt like it's such a zero sum thing. That I, I, can't, I mean, I've met some of them and I just think, actually, you would be happy to lose, which I just think is insane. <laughs> I can't understand that, especially when the prize is so tantalizingly close. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I guess that's politics for you. <laughs> yes, yes. <it> is. <laughs> so, what what about Nicola Sturgeon then? I mean, she's someone that you know very well. She is still, by far, the most popular politician in Scotland. Arguably, the mm-hmm. most popular politician in the UK, purely given the amount of time that she's been around for. People, are, I, and I realise when I say people, I mean elements of the media, opponents. Um, on all sides, say, well, you know, she's not going to fight the next general election, uh, the next Holyrood election. But to a lot of people, myself included, it, it seems insane to think that Nicola Sturgeon would be considering an exit strategy, given <laughs> the position she's in, given the regard she's held in the country, given the the, the position she has within her party. Um, and I know, you know <laughs> If you want to divulge any secrets, by all means do. I appreciate that perhaps you wouldn't. But is there any truth to that? I mean, do you think she is starting to look to life beyond government? No, (laughs) no. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, she wants to win independence. You know, that's what she came into politics for. That's what she wants to do. The Nicola is, is very... She can be very dispassionate about herself, you know, if she looked at herself and thought, well, I am no longer an asset to the independence cause, then she would start to think, should somebody else be taking my place? But obviously she looks, she looks at that and says, well, you know, clearly she is an asset to the independence cause. She is an asset to the SNP, so you know, for you know, I don't understand where these arguments come from that she's she's looking for a way out because she's, you know, she's not. She's got she's got a job to do as first minister, and she's got a job to do as leader of the SNP, which is to win independence for Scotland. That's what she's focused on. Um, I I genuinely have no idea 
why people think these things. I think it's just wishful thinking. <laughs> and do you think she's changed as a leader since she first became First Minister? I think she's become more confident, as any leader does over, over the years, you know. I think she's become more confident and more relaxed, you know, I th which I think is actually um, part of why people like her, you know, because she has become a bit more relaxed um, about, uh, you know, about being comfortable in what, in, what, in what she's doing, you know. Which is a thing, you you know, you don't get that feeling with Boris Johnson. You don't ever get the feeling that he's actually comfortable doing that job, you know. I don't mean comfortable as in complacent. I just mean that it feels right. It feels right that she should be doing that job in the way that Boris Johnson, I think it just doesn't feel right that he should be doing that job, you know. <laughs> yeah, and in a way that, not that she wouldn't be good at anything else, because she's clearly very talented and very intelligent and I'm sure would be a huge success whenever she chooses to leave or whenever her political career ends, um, by whatever means. But it is hard to imagine her doing something else. She's such a, um, I guess, a fixture of public life, but clearly so committed to public service that it's hard to imagine her yeah. as the former first minister. Well, I think when the time comes, you know, whenever it is, I think I think she would, um, I think she would quite relish, you know, being able to actually perhaps be more of a, you know, I don't, an elder states woman or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think she would relish being being in a position to support people and and advise people and help bring other people along. She's very keen on that. She's very keen on on supporting younger politicians coming up, you know. So I think I think I could see her doing something along those lines. And also she hasn't aged in office in the way that other politicians do. <laughs> is that because she's got a good work life balance or strong genes? What do you think her secret is? <laughs> I think it's both. I think it's both. I mean she's very she's very fit. I mean, I hadn't seen her for a while during the pandemic, and then um, I was out leafleting with her um, for the for, for the for the Holyrood election last year. So we went out leafleting, and I was like, "Oh my God, will you slow down? <laughs> I can't keep up. She is very fit." <laughs> and what sort of reaction? I mean, people must to have the first minister knock on your door. Even well, in a place in like, her, you know, yeah. I know people are used I mean, to seeing her around. people in her constituency kind of know her because she's, you know, she's around a lot. Um, I mean, she, she always makes time for her constituency stuff. And she's been knocking doors in that constituency for, for a long, long time. So people aren't really surprised to see her because they know, you know, she's, she's around MSP and she's always around. All politicians need, if they're going to be in it for a while stamina and i think one of the most amazing things about politicians of all parties is the resilience that politicians have particularly people who do it at whatever level for a sustained period of time is that dedication mm -hmm. to public service and that you know taking so many so much of politics is losing even when you're in charge you know the arguments you lose at all sorts of levels and, and just keeping going um thinking about yourself then and your own career and your own ambitions are you happy to 
be a counsellor and that's it? Or do you think, and I know you have a portfolio, but do you think actually one day I would like to lead the council or be an MSP? Would you ever want to go to Westminster if you're in a position where Scotland wasn't independent yet? Would you want to be first minister? Well, I mean, I I became a councillor rather than going for an MSP because until my dad passed away last year, I was my dad's carer. So it just wasn't feasible for me to be going to Edinburgh every day and stuff like that. But actually, I'm... I'm, you know, I'm going to say a counselor because I think it's important. I think local government is important. I think local leadership is important. So that's where I want to stay. Um, in terms of is there anything else I like to do? I don't know. I think I like to retire and solve crime. <laughs> solve <nice> crime. <laughs> what as a vigilante? No, I'll be no, I'll just be a Miss a Miss Marple. <laughs> <laughs> Miss <laughs> McMarple. Um, you represent the South Side in, in Glasgow, which is a fantastic part of the city. I mean, yeah. j- just thinking of some of the places to eat and drink there, places like the Allison Arms, Ranjit's Kitchen. I mean, it must be a great place to represent. Oh, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I mean, Govan Hill has just got, you know, it's like a it's like a tour of the world, <laughs> just in one community. <laughs> and do you find I mean you mentioned earlier about um, Glasgow and the deal it gets at a Scottish level and obviously um, you think about things at a UK level and, and which places get funding and which places get priorities within Glasgow does that play out as well are there parts of the city that get more are, are there as a representative for the south side do you often think actually we're not we're not a strong enough voice in this chamber or in this authority um no <laughs> as i say there's been there's been quite a bit of work done within within the council just to try and make sure that funding is going to the areas where it is it is most needed so that you know there are, <clears throat> you look at the sind that's scottish index of multiple deprivation and other things are taken into account when you're allocating money to, to communities um, because it is important that investment goes through it's actually going to make the most difference. And just thinking of Glasgow in general, obviously it has such an amazing reputation around the world and COP26 was a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Obviously that, that reputation was already there as a major international city and its reputation within uh, the UK similarly. Uh, as Glasgow comes out of the pandemic, I mean, does it face different challenges to, to other parts of Scotland now? I mean, I know there's... Yes, a, yes. A, and, and, and why is that? Is that purely just because it's the, the biggest place there are most people there, or are there other things specific to Glasgow? I think, I mean, I think Glasgow faces particular challenges because, because the city centre was such a huge... Um, Kind of draw, you know. You have so many people working there, and just, so you've got, you know, changes around working patterns is is going to have a very very big effect on Glasgow. Um, this is something we're trying to understand and doing a lot of work around now. Um, but yeah, it's gonna. We think it is gonna have a pretty big effect. Not necessarily a bad effect, but it's gonna be it's it, it's gonna bring changes. Because I read something recently about, oh, what's it called? A shopping centre that was built in 98 that might be 
You can't have a gallery. So yes. Good. So is that going to be rebuilt? Well, that's the plan. <clears throat> um, because it's, it's, I mean, they're looking to kind of rebalance and have a different type of, of retail offer, um, but also more housing in the area. Another, that must be very difficult as a local authority because obviously you want to, you know, that is job creation and cities are changing because human behaviour is changing um, and you have to adapt, obviously, um, so that, you know, I don't think there's ever a risk that Glasgow city centre would be a ghost town. Um, also, you don't want to change the character of a place and people feel yeah. often not until buildings are gone, people realise how much they really like them and that was part of their life and part of their identity in some way. That must be a very balance, a very difficult balance to strike. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily about losing shops. It's about, but a lot of shops now want to be on the high street. They don't want to be in a mall. They, they want to actually be on the high street. Also, that's what it is. It's that they don't want to be hidden away. I mean, Glasgow is obviously a city that's hosted big things like the Commonwealth Games and COP26. Is that something that as a city you're constantly looking for the next major thing that you can host, whether it's... And obviously it hosted some of the Euros uh, at Hamden last summer. Um, is that something as a city that's a, a priority for the authority to, to always make sure that you are part of big conversations and, and big events? Yes, yes. <coughs> it's a big focus um, to get as many events into the city as possible. We've got a really good convention bureau that does a lot of work to bring bring things into the city. And are there and any... of course, we've got the NCC, which is a great, you know, it's a great facility. Yes. I mean, there's so many phenomenal venues that you've got in Glasgow, various sizes that can host all sorts of things. Yeah. Um. So what's the next thing then? I mean, obviously, there's talk of a joint... UK and Ireland bid for Euro 2028. I think there was talk of the World Cup in 2030, but I think they've dropped that. Are there other things in the next few years that are going to be hosted in Glasgow? Big events. I'm sure there are, but I don't know what, I don't know what they are. Oh, there's Transmit, <laughs> sure isn't there? there? Transmit every year on Glasgow Green. Yes, yes. Well, that's that's actually a bit of a bone of contention for my constituents who live on Glasgow Green. They're not actually keen on... <laughs> Well, They're not the so keen on it, on it all the time. Yeah. I think they'd like to see it spread around the city a bit more. Do they get free tickets? Uh, yeah, they do. But I think my folk are just trying to get to sleep. <laughs> they kind of think, yeah, I don't actually don't want this here at all. <laughs> oh, that's a fair point. Because I just think free tickets often helps. But if you if it's not the sort of music you're into, it's it's very difficult. Um, yeah. But obviously, you don't have tea in the park anymore, so that's why you need, you know, these big outdoor yeah. music events in Scotland to to make up for that. Yep. Do you think it'd ever return? But to yeah, you in the park? I, mean, I mean, there is a big focus on on events, and uh, you know, we've, I mean, you know, we've had a lot of kind of sporting events in in Glasgow, and um, so there's a lot of expertise here in in delivering that, which is important to the city. I thought the um. I don't know if you went to the fan park in Glasgow during the Euros. Nope. <laughs> it looked absolutely brilliant. It looked like the best one in the world. Is it? Yeah. It looked, I, I think that might have been on Glasgow Green, actually. 
Yes, I think it was. I think I think you're right. Yep. But that looked like the best of all the ones that I saw photos of. That was the one that I was most jealous of that I couldn't get to. It looked fantastic. Yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, it all went really well. Well, hopefully um, the world will be looking at Glasgow again. I mean, what are these, I guess one of the benefits of COP26 is that you get these stories about Obama going to the buttery or, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> such and such a person going to the Blue Lagoon chip shop or whatever it is, you know, yes. you get these great stories. Um, so hopefully uh, Glasgow gets those moments again where you can yep. sit, you know, have the same chip supper that Justin Bieber had or whatever. I'm sure we will, yeah. <laughs> and we can't, you know, it, it's a place that people should visit. I think sometimes in the UK, people have the wrong impression of Glasgow, much as it's respected and loved, I think. Um, sadly, in the same way that people, you know, may think of Liverpool and, uh, you know, I'm from Nottingham and, and uh, its reputation precedes it in a way that is inaccurate. People have, they do. Yeah. People can have the wrong impression of Glasgow. I mean, one of the things apparently Glasgow is famous for is, um, and I didn't actually know this until fairly recently, but apparently it's quite famous among the vegan community for the number of vegan cafes and restaurants we've got, which is probably something people, if people have that idea of Glasgow as this kind of terrible place, you know, they'd probably be quite surprised, although it's full of vegan cafes. <laughs> well, there are some, I mean, it's it's always had great restaurants and, and pubs and oh, yeah, in general, yeah. but yeah, it's uh, it's got a very good vegan offer, so... Um, <laughs> if for no other reason, if if the football, if the comedy, if the theatre and everything else doesn't attract people, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and music as well. well. It's got <laughs> a great music scene. <laughs> Mary, thank you so much for coming on. This has been brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> well, there you go, Mary Hunter, and I'm very grateful for Mary for, for doing that with teeth missing. And with a, with a terrible cold. Um, and it was great to talk to her for the first time. We've spoken on social media for many years. And um, I think it is worth saying that. I obviously have my issues with the way that people deal with each other on social media, I, particularly in the political arena. And um, I think a lot of people have behaved appallingly in the last 10 or so years on there. Um, so I'm just so grateful to have been able to. One of the great things about social media is you get to know people online that you might have political differences, but you've got other stuff in common and they make reasonable points. And that's a good thing. So often when we talk about social media, often when I talk about social media, it's all about the negatives. And those negatives are real and they are big. And for many people, they are severe. And I don't belittle those at all because I share those concerns and reservations at times it does my head in and the way people behave on there is awful but there are positives to it and one of them is that I got to know Mary and I got to have her on the podcast uh, and it was great talking to her about some of those things that you know a lot of the it's even a reminder for me someone who's obsessed with politics but even just the stuff about the four and this affects people's lives this affects who gets what um the formulas that exist within areas to decide who gets what and it's not just as simple as knowing the first minister and being able to solve that problem these things are <laughs> bureaucratic and they are fixed and it is difficult and I think sometimes from the outside even with my admittedly limited political experience but nevertheless um I sometimes forget that 
I sometimes think, I just have a word, you know, and even though I know that to really not be the case, I I can fall into that way of thinking sometimes. So Murray was a fantastic guest and really good to think about a specific city, especially Glasgow and the challenges it faces and the political challenges there. Local elections, of course, in Glasgow um, this May. Um, So I will do some more local elections one as we get closer and try and get um, voices from all over the country um, in, in, in different places and different types of voices and everything else. I love it when there's an election on because it just, it's just a good excuse to do a load more episodes and get get different perspectives in a way that when I'm doing it just every week, um, I tend to just keep trying to get MPs on and I should be more um, experimental. So actually, if you've got a suggestion for a guest, do email me politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, particularly if... Um, they are relevant to the uh, elections happening in May. Um, so thank you so much for downloading this. Don't forget the next guest at the Duchess Theatre is Neil Kinnock. That is going to be superb. The guest after that is Tom Tugendhat. They are two amazing shows to look forward to. You can get tickets for those on my website, mattford.com, and my tour continues nationwide, taking in places this week, Corby, Chorley, Salford, and then on to uh, Newcastle, Hexham, Annick. Edinburgh, Glasgow, Brighton, uh, Nottingham, Norwich, uh, Maidstone, um, Maidenhead. Oh, I, I forget them. You know what? I should do this with a list in front of me. And I haven't done that. And I can only apologise. But I'm coming to a place near you because I'm going everywhere. So go to mattford.com to get your tickets. Please leave a review as well. I know um, <laughs> sometimes I ask, sometimes I don't ask. But it really does help the podcast to leave a written review. So please do that. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.